This week's podcast is really special, not only to myself, but to AV as well. Well, I just want to say one thing about that, though. Meditation, the ability to meditate is everyone's birthright. Everyone has the ability to meditate. If they can think a rational thought or irrational thought, they can meditate. And so I feel like if someone goes to a teacher the very first time because they want to reduce their stress or get out of their depression or feel a little better physically, and that teacher says, hey, you're not, you're one of those people that can't do it, that almost is a karmic event that uh, doesn't bode well for the teacher nor for the student. And then the student was walking around with that that belief system that somehow it's not for them when it's for everybody. So I believe that being a meditation teacher is a huge responsibility as you're a midwife to helping people experience their interior. Let's talk a little bit about this. You know, Aviana, I was saying longevity is key in terms of being a meditation teacher. You know, even though meditation and mindfulness is trendy and Everybody says, well, how hard can that be to to teach meditation? You know, I've meditated once or twice before. And those same teachers um, might be leading their students astray. You know, I, I feel like a certified teacher's um, vital and important because I've heard of so many horror stories in my 25 years of teaching meditation where a meditation teacher might say to someone, hey, you know, you don't have what it takes. Your mind is way too busy. And I've literally had to write that ship when people come to me and say, well, I've heard from another teacher that I just have a busy mind and I can't meditate. So you've got teachers out there that are doing that, that are saying, you know, you don't have what it takes or this is the way to do it. You should stop your mind. And I feel like a bad meditation teacher does more damage than, um, than they know. Let's talk a little bit about that. Even though they may have done it before in the past and maybe not so deliberately, as a meditation teacher, you're helping them navigate that mysterious world of the self with a capital S, that mysterious interior world of emotions and mental habits and connecting to uh, the one who's having the thoughts, the one who is sort of unconditioned the unconditioned mind. And if someone says, well, you can't do it or you don't have it, or someone has a bad first experience, that can deter them for years and years and years and um, keep them from having that deepening of their self-awareness or experience of personal evolution. I mean, I know everything happens for a reason. I get that. But as far as a meditation teacher, I believe it's a huge responsibility not one to be taken lightly or not one to, um, not a label to call yourself just because you think it would be cool. You know, I think your personal practice or my personal practice as a meditation teacher is the prerequisite to walking into the room and teaching someone else to meditate. And let's add a little bit of this. Sarah McLean is not only someone who inspires both A.V. and I, but someone who is influential in our path in not only building this studio, but building our practice as well. So in this week's episode, we talk about meditation, about Feast for the Soul, and about her journey through this meditation. So sit back and enjoy this amazing conversation with amazing soul, Sarah McLean. What's going on, love? How much? How are you? I'm doing really good. And I'm really excited about this podcast. And let me just say this, that this podcast could have been the first podcast we recorded because this podcast is going to cover the foundation of who we are, the foundation of our studio, the foundation of, you know, why, you know, you and I have come together, why we exist together as one. And so to have this podcast come out, it, it, it comes out when it's meant to come out. And I understand that. And we had to mature into this, in, into this podcast, I feel, but 
this is, I feel, one of the most important podcasts, the one that I will be recommending the most because it deals with the foundation of who you and I are, which is meditation. Yes. Well, not only is it the foundation of what we've built the studio on, but it's the foundation of um, where I started in this journey. Um, so I, I started this journey obviously several years ago. Um, however, took a, a giant leap forward after meeting this amazing soul um, in Chicago and then decided to take it another step further and completed um, my first meditation certification in 2013. Mm -hmm. So almost six years ago um, with the amazing Sarah McLean. Yay. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm just, my eyes are filling up and watering. I have to say I'm a little teary because I'm, it's, I'm a little sentimental, which I hardly ever am about the moments I met you, Aviana, the uh, evolution that you're on together as a couple and, you know, the effect and impact you're having on the world today. And I'm so grateful to have met you and to see your your journey and how you're evolving and your ripple effect in the world, which is like my dream come true as a meditation teacher and as a teacher trainer you know, my whole goal is to create this ripple effect of peace in the world. And the only way I know personally how to find that is by meditating and keeping up my practice. And here you are opening the door for so many people to find uh, that place, that home inside them, that place of safety and purity and silence and inspiration and creativity and passion that already exists inside them and you just help them to find it and experience it. You know, um, well, thank you for that. I mean, now my, my eyes are <laughs> welling up over <laughs> here. It, it's just, you know, I remember meeting you at an event and um, you led meditation for thousands of people. And I came out of that session saying, I'm in love with you, like your voice, your energy and you know, I, I, of course you had your books there, you know, um, the soul centered transform your life in eight weeks with meditation. That was, that was the book that I picked up, uh, from you. And then I, I started that little Facebook, um, meditation group and, <laughs> and you, you were so grateful to come on and, and do a couple of, you know, speaking engagements, um, via that. And, then I'm like, I need to sign up for your certification program and, and ended up doing that. And I, it, this is fascinating because just, just the other day I was thinking about this, that, um, uh, in one of our circles, uh, at the, at the training at the intensive in, in Sedona, um, I remember I cried like a baby, like it was one of the most, which so many people do because it's such a beautiful experience because you just, not only are you learning the intricacies of um, meditation, but you're learning so much about yourself, you know, and, and all of these things are, are starting to unravel in your own soul's journey. And I remember um, one of the things that I um, had started there was um, becoming a vegetarian. And, and it was, I, I don't know if you remember that, but it was like a massive intensity. I'm like, I don't know where this is coming from, but it's time for this to happen. Um, because I have such immense compassion for animals. And to this day, I'm still a vegetarian because of that intensive. It's insane. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, that is the side effect <laughs> of recognizing your interconnectedness with everything. I mean, you can't help but to expand your awareness of, um, how do I say it, the, the love that lives through you and the love that lives through all of nature and creation and all the living beings on this planet. So to be ignorant of that, not that anyone who's eating meat is ignorant, I'm not saying that, but to have that be your awareness and then not to follow it is it's detrimental, you know? And uh, I do love that you had that experience and that you woke up to that. And I remember that moment. But what I really remember 
the first moment before that, before you started the Facebook group and is sitting in that room in Chicago and, and speaking to you after the meditation and you're like, is it normal to see dead people? <laughs> um, and, you know, to be honest, it's, it's normal, but not for most people. Um, there are you know, very few people that wake up in meditation to these uh, other bandwidths of perception. And, um, you know, I know for in my case, when I was talking to you, you know, I'm not that person to guide you into that awakening into your gifts. However, I totally recognize them. And I'm sure many people who meditate start to recognize, wait a minute, I know something before it happens or the synchronicities are just too uh, vast to ignore. Or, you know, you start becoming more intuitive uh, in terms of um, your own direction and maybe even the direction of other people when they ask you a question. And so some people do wake up to these gifts, and you are one of them. So I love that it happened in that in that venue because then I could really refer to it as it's happened to others. I'd say it's probably about two to five percent of the people that ever learn to meditate start to wake up to these psychic gifts. Everybody becomes more intuitive. Everybody becomes more refined. Their senses become more enlivened and subtle and they tap into the subtler realms. But in your case, you know, you had a special you have a special gift. But I remember that moment going, uh oh <laughs> Uh oh. You know, I had forgotten all about that. Um um, me saying that it's, you know, when you, when you have these platforms and you're surrounded by so many people who are relatively more open in those types of venues, then it becomes more of a, a topic of conversation that is safe or safer, I should say. Um, and I think that maybe that's why, um, I, cause I don't remember having, I, I, I know I said that, um, I'm not saying that I didn't, but I'm just like, I'm, I'm already moving into the, like the meditation certification. And, and it's, it's interesting how you remembered that part because I was, um, at that moment of time, I was still working in the corporate world. I was wanting to quit and really step into this intuition and, um, awareness on a whole grander scale. And I knew that meditation was the foundation in order for me to be able to do that consistently. And so um, you were the first person that I was able to meet that I connected on such the level that I did where I trusted you um, in order to guide my journey um, outside of the quote unquote corporate world. And so I was just, when, when, when I met you, I'm like, that's it. I'm done. Like this is, she's, she's a beacon. She's the one who's going to help wow. me. Well, you're helping so many others at this point. It's it's uh, beautiful to watch, and I can I get to occasionally run into some of your students, and I love the way you nurture them. And really, it's an inner journey. Once someone's committed to their personal practice, you know, you, it's almost as if okay, you've taken the training wheels off, and off they go on their two wheeler bicycle, right? So, mm-hmm. but you've got to hang out with them while they get the training wheels on for a while, right? So then, and and I know we're going to be talking about, you know, quite a few things. We're going to be jumping kind of a little bit all over the place. But one of the things I do want to kind of bring this conversation is actually is, you know, the meditation. But I'm curious as far as like, how did it, you know, happen for you? And when did it happen? And how did it happen? And how was this? And then, you know, how did you, you know, transcend from that point to where you're at now? Well, the it you're talking about, when did it happen? Are you talking about when did I go into the foray of meditation and journey into that? Or Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's a really long story that I don't want to take up most of the podcast with. Um, it is written in my book, Soul Centered, and I'm not trying to plug it. You could probably read it on my website too. However, I do want to say that many of us are in that quest for love, for that quest for um, feeling uh, a sense of home and contentment and confidence. And I grew up in a, an environment that was not that safe in terms of emotionally safe. So I, I often felt a little reticent to connect with people um, or to feel my own feelings. And so there was that. That's sort of the 
sort of the canvas that I was kind of working with. And um, as a younger person, I didn't sort of subscribe to the way people did things like graduating from college or high school. <laughs> I got married at a young age. I, I eloped. I went into the army. I rode my bicycle most of the way around the world. I, you know, I, I went into a Zen center. I went into all kinds of environments to get sort of stimulated and to explore with the question, um, which I didn't even know the question, but it was sort of a sense of, is this it? Is this it? And I can say, eventually I did go to college and graduate. Eventually I got, before that, my GED. And I did get divorced from that guy. And uh, But in general, there was this question, is this it? And if I say, what is the it? It would be, is this love? Is this is this uh, the immersion into love? Now, years, um, gosh, I could say I skipped a lot of high school. And I, I used to take the subway into Boston, where I lived outside of Boston, actually into Cambridge, where later I find out that's where the first transcendentalists really had a platform out of Harvard, you know, whether it was Ralph Waldo Emerson or whether it was um, Henry David Thoreau or oh, yeah. all of them, they all had these ways of seeing the world and that, and they gave, they gave voice to in the late 1800s where they were saying, you know, there's more than what the Puritan religions are teaching us. There's this one soul, this one, Oversoul that is expressing itself through you and me, and I was looking for that. And so, as I was on these um, trips to on the trolley to Boston, I would pretend I was meditating. I must have been fifteen or sixteen years old. I didn't know what meditation was, but I knew what it looked like from the outside, sitting a certain way, and I knew that eyes were closed. But I didn't know what to do next. And I, but I had heard the Beatles had done it, and they were cool. So fast forward, um, <laughs> after I had uh, made my way out of high school and into the army and still looking for answering that mystery, trying to find out or discover the answers to what is this? What is it? Where is it? What am I looking for? And is this love? And even though it sounds like the military would be the wrong way to do it, I was a medic in the army, and I was working with soldiers who had PTSD and, and really the results the resulting mental and physical um, conditions that occur with chronic PTSD. And so I was working with them, and it was my first real experience of meditation. Uh, I'd love to say that I uh, learned to meditate because that's what the Army was doing. That is not what happened. What happened was one of our nurses that I was working with was a meditator and guided us through a body scan as we were sitting outside in a lawn um, – on a lawn outside of a psychiatric hospital where many people had ended up. And I remember the contrast between how I normally felt, which was unstable and lack of confidence and feeling a little bit fearful and anxious, to the experience of feeling this complete and utter relaxation, support, and love. And it only happened because of 10 minutes of being guided into a body scan practice. Now that was like a uh, yeah, that was like a um, a memory. You know how we have these memories, these pivotal turning points in our lives. That I can remember that contrast. And a lot of times, I think why people continue to meditate is because of that contrast between feeling so connected and at home and confident and passionate and creative. Versus the contrast of feeling a little anxious and rushing around and stressed out and not satisfied and future focused or past focused and not being, you know, engaged in what's going on. And so the contrast became important and recognizing the contrast between peace and stress, to put it just very simply, was essential. And so that uh, was like a seed that had planted um, among the other seeds of pretending to meditate. And so fast forward to many, many different events. But one another pivotal moment was I was asking that question, what else is there? I had become a successful real estate agent. I was about 26. Obviously, I'd held, had a full life before then. And um, I was saying, what else is there? And, you know, when we walk with a question or live with a question, 
our quest, quite often, you know, the whole universe conspires to answer that question. And not to sound too esoteric, but really, I believe that when we're having that, when we're looking for our keys, let's say we lost our keys, you're looking for the keys, you're going to just have your eyes open for the keys. When I am, and when you are in a quest for, you know, what's my passion or what is love or what is God or who am I, you know, you're going to keep your eye open for the signs and wonders. And so for me, I was reading um, a book review in the Washington Post about Ayurveda. It was about a book by, a book by Dr. Deepak Chopra, which most people know about now because of his Oprah Chopra meditation series. And he's written like 85 books. But I was reading about him when no one had really heard of him other than probably his immediate family and patients. And I thought, oh my gosh, this guy is talking about something that really matters. And so that I uh, eventually worked for him. And that was starting in 1989. I I learned to meditate for real, Um, not just pretending, not just being guided into meditation, but I became uh, self-sufficient, accoutrement-free. I needed no one else to tell me what to do next with my eyes closed. So that, you know, that's like, an, I'd have to say the it. That was the it is that first learning to meditate then. I had been to Zen centers before that. I had been checking it out, chanting, doing things like that. But there was this time when I said, okay, here's that contrast again. And this is something I'm going to stick with. There's one thing that you said, and I so agree with you, and where, where to me, I always used to say, and, and I share this with AV, and I wonder what you think about this, love, is that I always said that the question is more important than the answer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, without the questions, uh, we're not going to recognize the answers, you know? And, and I also believe, uh, you know, who we really are as human beings and maybe as life forms is that we are really passionate and curious. Curiosity is a spiritual quality, you know, to say, why is this happening? What is this? What is it that's looking through my eyes? What is it that's animating all of this creation? What is this intelligence that underlies all this? And what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? So as, um, you know, 21st century humans, we're used to not being, uh, not knowing because a lot of us have access to Google and we, you know, for instance, you might ask, well, what is, what is that word she's talking about? Or what is that ashram she went to? Or what is, what is that particular species of butterfly or palm tree, which is what I'm doing out here. (laughs) And I immediately go to Google and I can find out, but that, you know, we're as humans, not necessarily, not necessarily comfortable with not knowing. And so to ask a question somehow is encumbered by some lack of uh, some lack of comfort to be in the not knowing can be uncomfortable for many of us. But what if we just ask the question and be comfortable in that open possibility? For instance, some of you know I just moved to California. I closed my meditation center in Sedona, although I teach there a lot. Um, but the physical brick and mortar building I've I've since moved out of, and I'm opening a center here in California in the next month or two, uh, or becoming affiliated with a new center that's that's being opened here. And so I'm not sure necessarily what's going to happen next. None of us actually are. We think we do, but I I love being in the not knowing and trusting and recognizing that. Everything is um, happening for mine and your evolution. I mean, I feel like everything's happening to wake us up. If you're on a spiritual path to begin with, if you're in that quest to begin with, so I, I really tend to trust what's what's happening next, and that not knowing is actually exciting for me now, rather than anxiety provoking. Right. You know, it's it's interesting that you're saying that about um, you moving from you know, Arizona to California and, and, um, moving into a different space and being affiliated with a different space. Uh, obviously we have the studio here in Michigan and, um, it makes me laugh now because we're just almost a year 
uh, into opening the studio and Chris and I were having conversations, you know, a year ago, we're going to do this, this, and this, and we're going to have this, and we're going to have this, and we're going to do this. And um, interestingly enough, all of those things that we had planned, um, none of them are happening um, because it's like when you surrender, I like to call it surrender with intention, um, the studio actually created an energy of its own. And and guided us to what it wanted versus what we were wanting. And it's just, it's so beautiful when you can honor that as that sacred space and, and let this consciousness, let that space, let that question. Because when we go into, you know, meditation as this foundation and, and you, you know, what is this? And then you let go of, you ask the question and then you let go of it. Mm-hmm. That's when the magic happens. Magic. I love it. That is exactly what happens. And, you know, we make plans and God laughs, right? You've heard that. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and the center, the center has, it already knows what it needs. And, you know, your community, whether it's the community that's listening to this podcast or the community in Michigan or whatever community you've got, they they are going to call from you what needs to happen. So a lot of surrender is important. I one really important teacher, Ramana Maharshi said, he's, he's no longer here. He's in ancient India. He was really into inquiry, asking questions. And the main question he would say is, who is the one who's asking that question? When many of his students would come to him with questions about enlightenment or meditation. But he said there are two paths to enlightenment. And I don't think they're separate. I think they are like two wings of a bird. The first would be uh, inquiry. You know, what is next? What is this? What is God? What is love? Who am I? And then the second wing of that bird is that surrender. And so there are two paths to enlightenment, inquiry and surrender. And they are essential. I feel like they're they're partners or co-conspirators. Yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating when you say it like that because I you know, AV's right. When we came into the studio, you know, we came into the space and we were filling the space with our ideas of what we wanted to happen. And <laughs> And God was laughing. Right, and, <laughs> and as I see it now, I see that the space said, you know, no guys, or like you're saying, source God, no, this is not gonna happen. But let me tell you what fits in this space, you know, and instead of forcing, you know, instead of forcing ourselves into space, you know, space said, you know, I can't, I will embrace you, you know, within the, you know, in this parameter, you know, and so it's, it became a relationship between this, the space, the studio and, and us. And part of that, like you guys are saying is, is the surrender. But now when it comes to, and, and I know we're talking about the meditation, but at what point did you then decide where you really got so deep into it that you wanted to like share, share these gifts? Well, let's see. How do I say that? Well, as part of working with Deepak Chopra, we went from living, I was living in the Transcendental Meditation community where he was teaching in Massachusetts. We went out to California. So funny. I've been thinking a lot about that since I'm finally back here. Uh, I remember coming out here, and um, since I'd already been working with him, he asked me to come out and be a program director. So I was really, it was really grassroots. I mean, the the way the Chopra Center kept evolving was very grassroots, especially as he separated from working with the, the Transcendental Meditation community and Maharishi, one of his teachers. And um, I started to put together this center he was trying to create. And again, the center wants what it wants. The, the, his, the way it started had, was a completely different model than the way it ended up and his career led him. That's a different story for him to tell. But I can tell you as the education director of his center, um, you know, I had to develop all these programs. They were programs for the general public that were coming in from local you know, locally, there were the programs that people would travel into uh, to come for a weekend retreat or come for a one-week panchakarma, you know, that purification uh, treatment. And then I had to, you know, manage 
teaching within the structure of those one-week programs as well. So we put together so many different programs, and I started teaching as one of the first teachers he had and the company had trained to become a meditation teacher. So I had a very strong personal practice, and being in those communities really established my, how do I say it, that that interior focus. I'm, you know, as many of us are trained to have our attention exterior, focused on the exterior, you know, what's it smell like, what's it look like, what's it taste like, what's it sound like, how do I move through this space, you know, and then with this, you know, I'd have to say the interior, they call it the inner stroke or the um, interior stroke was so well-developed in me that after I started teaching, it was easy for me because many of the people just were coming because of him. So I wasn't um, having to develop students or develop a following. But then I became aware of people wanting to be teachers. So, And it wasn't just me becoming aware of it. Deepak started creating the teacher training program, which I know, Aviana, you went through as well. And um, so I, I started to help manage that teacher training program and to help co-lead some of the the groups within that. And, you know, years went by as, as a teacher, as a tr- teacher trainer. And once I left the Chopra Center, it was just one day I said, okay, I think I'm done here. We had gone through about four or five incarnations. Uh, it was the second to last incarnation before he went to California. And I said, I think I'm done here. I think I want to go to India and see where all of this comes from. He had actually invited me to his daughter's wedding, Malika, years ago. Uh, for you know, in Indian weddings, they go on for days and weeks, and I didn't have that kind of vacation time or funding <laughs> to be able to do that. But it certainly planted a seed for me to go there when I had time. So I decided to leave and went to India, and I didn't really know where I was going, but I ended up staying in an ashram. Uh, for six months. Well, I was in India for six months and stayed the majority of the time in the ashram. Uh, Some of you know Amma, the hugging saint. I lived with her in her South Indian ashram, which was very powerful and special. And so I I did that, and I'd go on and on about that, but again, we're on a short podcast, so I'll, I'll keep it kind of brief. It just helped me to immerse myself once again into community living and recognizing the the support um, that each one of us is on a spiritual path really needs. Um, the support we need consists of our personal practice, continuing to garner knowledge and inspiration from people who have gone before us. Uh, so there's knowledge, practice, and of course, the, in, the community that we create. And Aviana, when I think about your center, what I see is this hub of um, this space where community can be made and community can grow. And whether the community, you know, is consistent over time, it doesn't matter. You know, for people ask me all the time, well, you seem like you're in the inner circle. I said, that's because I am the circle. You are, every single one of us is the circle and we can create community with whomever is within our proximity, whether it's uh, on a podcast, whoever's listening to this right now, you are my community. You're it. And I'm speaking to you. And Aviana and Chris, you're my community. And so you're creating a community and that's what I craved and living in an ashram. And I'm lucky enough to do it. I didn't follow the path that most people do of, you know, finding a mate and having kids and doing that whole householder path. Uh, I really had the freedom and the luxury and the confidence to just follow my interior kind of calling. And so after six months in India, and I had a lot of beautiful experiences there, including meeting the Dalai Lama and teaching English to the Tibetan Buddhist nuns that lived right outside of his residence. So I, cool. Oh my gosh, it was <laughs> a heaven on earth. Um, because the way they treat teachers there is, it's just so beautiful. The respect that they give someone who's willing to uh, share generously and you know at no cost they just the the reverence was so beautiful and taught me to be a little more reverent uh, because I'm a little ir- I have been a little irreverent most of my life um, so 
that was a beautiful aspect. And then when I got back from India, back to the States, I ended up uh, working part-time to put together some other programs for Deepak. But I also lived in a Zen Buddhist monastery while I was doing some of that. So I was having kind of two worlds blending, Vedanta, the Vedic wisdom uh, from ancient India, and then Zen, Zazen, and Zen Buddhism. This We were... Um, you know, in the white plum lineage, which is Soto Zen and Rinzai Zen, which is interesting, Chris, because uh, Rinzai Zen is all about koans, asking questions that stop the mind. Uh, we probably are familiar with, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping. But there's also koans like, you know, um, what was your face before you were born? You know, and or and so these koans is that's Rinzai. And Soto is simply just sitting. So it's this questioning and then surrendering <laughs> that became part of my world uh, after two years living there. So I just kept following the question, what is there? What's next? Surrendering to that. And so how did I create, how did I end up in Sedona? It's kind of a long story. But after two years of working in the Zen Center, I ended up getting a job working with someone who called himself a secular monk. Uh, his name is Gary Zukoff. Some of you know him because he's been on Oprah now for 50 times. And he wrote, <laughs> yes. yeah, and he wrote <laughs> The Seed of the Soul and he wrote The Dancing Wooly Masters. And he had asked around for someone to help him kind of navigate this world of this public life. Same thing that Deepak had to do or navigating a public life from all this knowledge he had. Gary was having to figure out how to navigate a public life, you know, and now that his his creations were becoming or his conversations were becoming much more um, popular. So I started working with him in Mount Shasta uh, for a year or two, probably a year and a half. And then I started to find that I was needed in Los Angeles, the place that was, if I could say, is on the bottom of my list of places to live. It was Los Angeles, except for it was such a surprise for me because I got there and I fell in love with it. Uh, the sense of community there, of course, the weather wasn't too bad. And um, I started working with a woman named Byron Katie. Some of you know her. She She's founded the work and she's all about the question, you know, uh, what and and really questioning your reasons for having beliefs that don't serve you and holding on to them. And many of us had them. I had them. Uh, for instance, you know, I had the belief I wasn't lovable. I had the belief there was something inherently wrong with me. I had the belief I was too fat and ugly. I had the belief that other people had what it took and I didn't even though I had been meditating for years and years at this point. And those those thoughts were just in my software. And so it was grace that I got to work with her, and I became her program director, actually her school director. She does uh, schools that are 10 and 14 day long at that time, schools. And I got to really meet those thoughts that don't serve me, that were my default neural network thoughts, and ask, well, who would I be without this thought? You know, is this thought even true? First of all, I know I believe it, but is it true? And who would I be without the thought? And also just examining the ripple effect. So the, the four questions she uses are, um, is it true? So think about any thought that sends you to the moon and not in a good way. Is it true? Can you absolutely know it's true? Uh, who would you be? Oh, oh, how do you feel or, or react when you have this thought? How does it ripple into your life? What does it, it do? You know, so for instance, I, I'm in LA or now I'm in Santa Barbara. Um, so who would I be without the thought that my life was, um, that I had a bigger reach in Sedona? Who would I be without the thought that my ripple effect, um, was as big as it could be when I taught in Sedona. You know, maybe I'd have this sense of wonder and awe and open-heartedness and, again, being in that quest with um, surrender, you know? Um, so some of my limiting beliefs kick in when transitions occur and there's no surety. And I'm sure that happens for everyone. Uh, you lose a job. 
you know, what's next for me? Will I ever make it again? You lose a relationship. Oh, I'll never be the same. I can never feel that way again. You might have some injury physically or some um, diagnosis, you know, gosh, my life was like this and now it won't be. And so you get to really put the inquiry to the test. Who am I when I think this thought? I can't do it. And then who would I be without the thought? And then living into that, who would I be without the the thought? So I met my husband uh, when I was working with Katie, and he lived in Sedona. That's how I ended up there 17 years ago. And uh, people would start coming to me because I ha- I was teaching a lot. And people would say, well, how can I teach what you teach? At this point, I'd had so many varied experiences above and beyond working with Deepak Chopra, who is, I consider as one of my uh, primary teachers, but I had so many other teachers up until that point that I would send people to the Zen Center when they wanted to deepen their practice. I would send people to the School for the Work of Byron Katie when they wanted to deepen their practice. I wanted to send them to, or I did send them to Gary Zukoff's work and his um, spiritual partnership programs. I did send them, as you know, Aviana, to the Chopra Center. And I realized that, you know, I got to have such a a great amount of teachers and I got to really, I have this alchemy of, the teachings created an alchemy that I feel like I can offer people to explore their own lives. So that's how I started is finally those point, places I was pointing to didn't satisfy the people long enough or enough that they wanted more. And so I somehow one day just wrote my curriculum. <laughs> That's, That's a long answer. That's <laughs> a long answer. <laughs> it's a fantastic answer. But one thing that I have to um, um, just segue real quickly, and it's it's piggybacking off, in, off of what you just said is, you know, after, after I finished my training with you in 2013 and um, just really, really deepened my practice because it was, it was my first practice. You know, you, you, you really, you have an amazing program. It's, um, you know, it, and this is funny because people think, oh, meditation, it's, it's, um, you know, it, it's not a big deal or, I mean, it's such a big deal. And the intensity that of your program, not, not that it's scary or anything like that, but the, the, you've developed many programs for many teachers. And so you've, you've created this foundation of awareness and books and resources that um, it's just not something that you can thumb through and take a test and be done. I mean, it it took several, several months uh, to go through. But after completing that program, um, your program, um, a couple of years uh, went by and and then there was this desire to go deeper, not necessarily deeper, but but going on a different branch, I, I guess, um, would say, and, and I reached out to you and I asked and I said, what are your thoughts about um, moving through in addition to adding to my certification with Deepak? And um, I've been around teachers before who don't support other people. And um, so I wasn't afraid of your answer, but I so looked up to you and admired you and um and i asked you and and you said i think you should absolutely explore it and i was like ah oh. like it was just so amazing that someone that you look up to and in is an inspiration who's encouraging you to you know um broaden the experience uh, even more and go uh on on a on a different journey um somewhat And so I was just, I don't think I've ever shared with you how grateful I am for you to um, support that because it was, I I had never had that support from um, previous teachers. They're, they're very just, it's my way and only my way. And they don't like a lot of expansion. Um, And, and interestingly, now today, you know, I send, for people who are really, really want to jump on the path, um, I send them your way. And, um, and there's quite a few people that have, I would probably, I think there's been five or six people that have went through your program, um, who've, um, I've invited them to share time with you. And, 
um, I'm just I'm just so grateful that there is this, you know, um, reciprocity between uh, helping each other um, move and continue to grow and, and to be inspired because it's unfortunately you don't see a lot of it. And that's clearly something that I um, want to change and shift within teachers <laughs> um, is is that just supporting everyone's journey because everyone brings something different to the table. We all have different energies and different experiences. And um, so thank you oh, uh, well, for thank encouraging, you. <laughs> encouraging, you know, um, that movement forward. But I, I also wanted to segue into something that I'm really, really excited about because Clearly, this has been a journey that I've been on for five years, and uh, um, and you are um, the director of this amazing experience called Feast for the Soul, which is a 40-day um, spiritual practice intensive that begins January 15th. And um, I became aware of this program um, a few years ago, after clearly after going through your program, um, but now it's something that you're running and you're creating um, an extension of it. And um, it's free, which I feel is an, another amazing opportunity of of bringing an awareness to this uh, amazing <laughs> practice, because that's essentially what it is. But there are, um, you know, over 20 countries involved in this and thousands and thousands of people who are participating. Um, can you give us a little bit of your thoughts on Feast for the Soul, what your vision, your continued vision is of it, and um, direct the listeners to how they can participate in it? Okay. Well, years ago, um, a woman contacted me. Her name was Valerie Sconey, and she talked to me about this program she was heading up called Feast for the Soul. It was actually called Winter Feast for the Soul, and I didn't quite understand what it was, but she said it was a particular practice period that um, was run every year annually between January 15th and February 23rd. It's 40 days. It was something she had um, been inspired to create, and she was living in Idaho at the time, after reading a poem by Rumi. Some of you know him, this the Persian uh, mystic. And he had written, and this is just a snippet of a poem, he said, what 40 early, or what nine months does for a growing embryo, 40 early mornings will do for your growing awareness. So she decided to get a group of friends together, and she was a Sufi herself. She's um, uh, an American woman who was following the Sufi tradition, and she decided to gather groups of women together and find some teachers and deepen her spiritual practice for 40 days and for 40 early mornings at 40 minutes. So she mm -hmm. was doing a lot. So um, she, it ended up that she had a little bit of a ripple effect that people started to hear about it and wanted to take part in it. And this was before we have the platforms we have now. She was on um, recording things on a talk shoe, which was a an online platform, which has since crashed. So we've lost many thousands of recordings, but she got all these teachers from all these traditions, whether they're sheikhs or rabbis or mystics from the Sufi, Christian, uh, Jewish, um, Zen, all kinds, Buddhist, all kinds of traditions. And she asked them to record 40 meditations. I was one of those people she asked to have record. There are lots of people. There's um, some beautiful, beautiful recordings and, and lots of years of uh, a library of years worth of recordings that you can find on feastforthesoul.org, F-E-A-S-T, forthesoul.org. And she came to my house in Sedona, and I was impressed by her dedication to her practice year-round, her spiritual quest. She had been a successful businesswoman, but yet she was doing this um sort of as a volunteer, just like I'm currently doing it. And I loved it. She guided me into a meditation I was impressed with. I I was impressed with her practice, her dedication. And so she got a, a fairly sick a couple of years ago and, you know, was trying to find someone to take care of this baby of hers, this body of knowledge, this, this, um, this event that was happening every year. And she couldn't find anyone who was non-commercial. 
So she found people that said, oh, yeah, we'd love to have that and we'll take your mailing list and we'll, you know, we'll charge people for it. And she couldn't find someone who just did it for the for the heart of it. And for me, my deepest desire is to have people wake up to the beauty and wonder of this creation. Just like you did, Aviana, whether it's changing the way you eat or changing the way you treat people or drive or how you make your living or how you treat your family or being present for another person. That is my deepest desire is to have people wake up to the possibilities of love and and loving their lives. And so for me, it's it's an effort that um, I've been able to take over. I'm in my, I think it's the third full year, or second full year, third year of doing it. I had to recreate a new website. I had to try and find all these um, old recordings. I have new content every year. And Aviana, I'm pleased to say you are one of our meditation leaders. And now we don't ask you to do 40 meditations of 40 minutes. In fact, you can lead people in 10 different meditations, and we can talk about what your your focus is. But you'll find on there people that, uh, you know, Richard Miller, who does a lot of yoga nidra. You'll find David G., who used to work for the Chopra Center, who's out teaching too. There's some meditations by Thich Nhat Hanh and by contemplative Christians and really beautiful rabbis and Sufi leaders and sheikhs out of um, the Middle East. And so there's... There's actually meditations for corporate, for uh, self-love. We have different meditations in German and Spanish. And so it starts on the 15th. So what we ask people to do is say, you know what, I'm ready after the holidays to recommit to deepening my spiritual practice. I mean, the holidays are over. I want to start this year off right and so how do I do it? And this is a beautiful way. All you have to do is, and you don't have to sign up at all. You could just do it anytime, anywhere. But we ask people to sign up on our website and they will get an email every day from me for 40 days, which features um, spiritual poetry, various chanting, uh, links to chants, links to meditations, insights into the lives of mystics, uh, you know, maybe some sort of insight from an artist or someone from, you know, like Rumi, his full poem, or there'll be something that sort of satisfies everyone, whether you're looking at Mother Teresa and the way she lived her life or uh, the way that maybe a modern day meditator might. And so for me, it's been very expansive because what you mentioned earlier uh, as putting people or suggesting people keep going in their practice, just because someone comes to me as a meditation teacher or comes to me as a teacher of teachers and they get their teacher training certification, I never say stop here. I don't want to stop. And if you think of the imagery of um, our spiritual path as a, and I write about this as one of the newsletters, but as a lotus seed, and you hear about this, that um, deep, um, even Thich Nhat Hanh, that Vietnamese uh, Zen monk, he would say, no mud, no lotus. Each one of our spiritual paths is really born out of sort of this this longing for something, whether it's dark night of the soul or a longing for life to be different. And so imagine a, a, a lotus seed being planted on the bottom of a a pond, a murky pond, and eventually it starts to sprout and this tendril makes its way toward the surface of the pond. And as it does, it then blossoms into, you know, what Americans might call a lily pad or um, in many traditions, this lotus flower. And in these, the world of spirituality, they talk about this thousand little petaled lotus that continually blossoms. It doesn't just have, you know, a an eight-day life cycle. It continually blossoms. And that's your spiritual path. That's my spiritual path. That's every one of our spiritual paths is that we finally make it into this awakening and blossoming. And it's not just one way. It continually has to be fertilized, moving towards the sun and blossoming in its its own beauty. So the Feast for the Soul is one way to do that, uh, but continually feeding your soul with teachers and uh, whether they're modern day or ancient masters, you know, continually exploring uh, how to 
Remove the obstacles that keep you contracted, removing, removing any sort of self-limiting beliefs and um, fear so that you can walk into any situation expanded bright like a lighthouse, lighting up whoever happens to be around you. Mm. You know, I um I could just sit and listen to you all day. <laughs> you know? I mean, you're, you're uh you know, I when we when we started our conversation offline before we started this recording, um you were just talking and I was just here in our little podcast room closing my eyes just, you know, listening to you and um I'm so captivated um by your presence, by your voice. I'm so um I'm wired auditorily or auditory and and so I um I'm so in tune with people's uh voice and their frequencies and which is <laughs> which is kind of one of those things that is really important to me when I listen to someone a guided visualization or a meditation I have to be very aligned with their voice and that was I will tell you that is what um, one of the things that connected me with you when, when I met you in Chicago, it was just, I could just sit and listen to you for <laughs> hours. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only one who said that to you. No. Um, it's just, it's just your voice just like encapsulates. And I'm, I'm just so excited that so many people are going to be able to um, listen to you on this podcast and your experience and we're just so grateful to have you on here well i think it's also the the, the stories that you yeah know, the, the adventures that that you've been on and i know and, and and obviously i'm gonna say it right now before i even forget that we definitely want to have you on for like three or four more <laughs> oh because i'm curious about the you know the zen i'm really curious about you riding a bike um now, just let me just, you know, can you just give me a little sample of that? Like, did you have like a backpack? Uh, you, you, you said you rode on a bike, you were like a regular bicycle? Yeah, well, it was a mountain bike. And, you know, I'm going to tell you, it was years ago when mountain bikes first started coming to the U.S. And remember, I was living in, I, oh, I forgot to tell you, I, was, I ended up moving to Cambridge, Massachusetts after a while. And I was finishing up my college degree and I had met this guy who was a Zen he was really a Zen practitioner, and he, um, we met, and he was leaving for two years <laughs> to travel around the world by backpack. His first, his first journey was in Africa, and um, I thought, well, that's the end of him. I started dating other people, and he, he calls me, he says, I have, um, gosh, what is he? He had some crazy disease. I want to say dengue fever. He got so sick um, that he came home sooner than expected. And apparently what had happened was he had seen these people on their bicycles riding around Africa and getting to go off the beaten path. I mean, when you're traveling by backpack, you're basically stopping at train stops and bus stops. It's probably different now. But we, uh, he said, let's just do this. Let's get mountain bikes. They had just come out. Let's saddle them up. Uh, we put panniers on the back. We put a little front pack on the front. I had my tent. I had a stove. I had a air pump. I had about three changes of clothing. And he said, let's just go and do the rest of it on our bicycles. Well, the thing was, you know, I'd been a, a biker, but not, I mean, I'd ridden a bike, but I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I eventually started calling my mountain bike a hog, you know, like a <laughs> motorcycle, my <laughs> hog. But um, yeah. it was amazing. We're in like the middle of Pakistan or way up by the Chinese border or in Thailand. And people had seen bicycles before, but they hadn't seen a white girl on a mountain bike so fully loaded in the middle of nowhere. And sometimes it was very, very scary. Sometimes it was very, very, um, well, gosh, it was so exciting. And to be able to meet people and basically I got really good at miming because of course I don't know how to speak Urdu or, you know, <laughs> Thai or Turkish or whatever. So I ended up um, just having this beautiful experience in the Middle East and in Asia. Uh, the fellow I was with, oh, he had typhoid. Typhoid? Uh, anyway, and malaria. He had two things. Uh, but the guy I was with, he's a dear friend of mine today. We ended up uh, way up in Chiang Mai, which is in the Golden Triangle. Uh, some of you have probably heard of it. It's gotten a lot of press since then. But um, it's I think it's where Cambodia, Thailand, Thailand. and yeah. 
Yeah, it's their three. That's why I call it the triangle. There are three right. countries there, and I wish I could tell you off the top of my head. But so he wasn't feeling well, so I left him in this hostel, and I said, "Well, look, I'm going to go on a on a trek into the into the um, Golden Triangle, and I'll be back in like three or four days. I don't know when I'll be back, but I'm going to go." And so I left him. He seemed fine. When I got back, he was bouncing off the walls. He had contracted some sort of bacterial pneumonia. And he was hallucinating. He hadn't eaten for days. And I, so I had to pick him up and put him in a tuk-tuk, you know, one of those little rickshaws and take him to a hospital. Fortunately, there was this hospital there where they spoke a little bit of English, and he was in there for two weeks with this horrible pneumonia. He was all <laughs> so that's when our trip ended. We had made a plan to go for two more years. We only went for nine months. We would bicycle about a hundred kilometers a day, which is like sixty miles a day. And wow. you know, there are many, many stories and pictures and photos and Gosh, but it was it was a really powerful experience. You know, I'm a daredevil. I mean, you take me, I'll be in the army. I'll throw a grenade and I'll take apart a submachine gun. I'll do target <laughs> practice. You put me, you put me. You know, I'm scared of, of my own shadow, but I can ride my bike around the world. Um, but no, but but I grew up pretty scared. I was telling my husband, you know, every photo I look at, I'm crying as a kid because I'm scared of something. But I guess, you know, sometimes the the as Debbie Ford, another person I worked with for a while who I love, she you know, would qu- often quote Carl Jung and say, the gold is in the dark. You know, the gold is in the dark. So what did my fear give me? It gave me this gold of, of bravery because I was always over, trying to overcompensate being afraid. So it gave me this great courage. So quite often our what we might imagine as our flaws are really just the fodder for our greatest gifts. That's, 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 that's beautiful. That's another podcast. And and I think, I think that's, that, that's really the, the, it it comes all around to saying, um, is this it? You know, when you, when you're, you know, doing what you're doing and and having the the courage, the, the curiosity to, you know, to kind of just go out there, you know, it's asking that question. Is this it? And then um, I remember Sarah singing um, This Is It by Kenny Loggins. <laughs> I'll, 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 add, I'll add 10 seconds of that at the end of this where we this won't get copyright it. strike. Make no mistake where you are. Well, no, I asked Kenny if I could sing it. He ended up in my living room, <gasps> if you can even believe this. His girlfriend uh, at the time decided she wanted to learn to meditate so he asked he said well who do you want to learn from and she said sarah so she lived in somewhere in scottsdale they made a trip up to sedona and it happened to be their birthday they have the same birthday and she learned to meditate i had a big calligraphy on my wall by Thich han that said this is it and he was you know, I said, I love this one song that you wrote. This is it. He goes, well, don't you know all my other songs? I said, not really. <laughs> um, but I said, I love this one song. I don't really even know all the all the lyrics, but I remember it. This is it. Make no mistake where you are. Right? The waiting is over. So for those of us waiting for, you know, enlightenment to hit us or waiting to lose 10 pounds, you know, at the beginning of this year – People are making all these commitments. My life will be better if I go to the gym every single day or if I meet the love of my life or I get my raise or my kids move out or I'll be retired. You know, instead of waiting, this is it. This is it. And make no mistake where you are. The waiting is over. There is no other moment. And so to really fully understand that, even Eckhart Tolle, who wrote The Power of Now, he would say, Give up waiting. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to embrace everything now and being okay with the not knowing and keep on following our yums and our yucks. We'll talk about that in another podcast. But <laughs> but I do invite everyone to come to the Feast for the Soul. And all you have to do is 
is put your name on the list. You can do more than that. You can become an area organizer, collecting groups of people in your area, whether it's at your workplace or your family. We have a, a couple of people that are leading groups in doctor's offices and in libraries and yoga centers all around the world. And, you know, we have brochures and posters if you want them. But Aviana, you're leading a series of 10. Do you have a particular theme? You know, I have, um, I have a couple of themes, so I'm, I'm narrowing them, them down. And actually I have on my calendar, because I'm such an advocate of a calendar, actually I have um, multiple recording sessions scheduled um, this New Year's week. So you'll have all that information um, by the end oh. of this next week. Yay. Well, you <laughs> You are all in for a treat. You know, this library is, you know, it's we host all the meditations on SoundCloud. So, you know, they are, obviously you can repurpose them anytime, but you can download them. You can keep them with you. I know that a lot of people are saying, well, what's the best meditation for me? Well, I always answer that with the meditation that you do mm -hmm. and uh, that, you know, serves to expand your awareness. And so awareness expands on its own. You just have to let yourself have... Uh, the opportunity to settle your nervous system down and get rid of the stress that keeps you contracted. But if you join this, you'll have all the latest and greatest uploads, um, you know, meditations from great teachers like Aviana. We are so excited that you're going to be on this. So thank you. And thank you for having me on this podcast. Oh no, no, no problem at all. And for those of you listening to this podcast, as we typically like to do, we want to thank all of you for your time and energy for taking the time to uh, listen. I will have the, um, the feast for the soul. Some of the things that we talked about will be in the show notes in your podcast player. And just so that everyone knows it begins at January 15th to February 23rd, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. Right. Right, and then, right. and then also we, and I'll let you say what you want to say. Uh, um, I'll make sure we, I put the website on there. It's feastforthesoul.org, correct? Right, right, perfect. Yeah, and we we invite you to just join that um, if you like, or just check it out. And you know, obviously, if you can get Aviana's meditations, I that I know they're going to be good. And I have two different series on there. I have 40 days of meditation. So when I when I talk about what's your theme, don't worry about it. I have no theme for that other than <laughs> that was a lot of work. And then the other um, the other series I have, which is really fun, it's called The Ten Jewels. And it's all about the yoga sutras and the yamas and niyamas, these various personal practices of generosity and kindness and speaking the truth and nonviolence. And it's a conversation I'm having with another faculty member of the Meditation Teacher Academy. And um, his name is Zach. And that's a great series that you can download. But in terms of our teacher training, you know, people have asked me, are you still doing that? And I know you even asked mm -hmm, me offline, right? Ayana, and we are. We have um, teacher training programs all over Europe and the United States. So I invite anyone who's hearing the call to check that out, meditationteacheracademy.com. All right. And, that, and again, that will be in the show notes. So once again, Sarah, love. Thank oh you. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. I am Amazing. I am overflowing with... Um, uh, a bunch of yeah, a bunch of butterflies and a bunch of yum. So, um, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so grateful for you being an inspiration um, for not only myself but um, Christopher and our amazing studio. And look forward to doing this a few more times in 2019. For sure, for sure. Oh, that sounds like fun. Thank, thank you. you, thank you both. Thank you so much. 